Board. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Hopefully everything is well. Um, welcome to a new episode of the Beast Mode Tech Tuesday. I'm here in the facility in the back of the office, and I'm surrounded by some beautiful specimens of automobiles, as grinding happens on the side of me over here. I have, let me kind of get you a little taller here, if you don't mind. Okay, get you a little taller. There we go. Okay. Here we go. Hello, Renzo Pancorvo. Good seeing you as well. Ryan Polsakowski. Good afternoon. What's up, Lucas Weinsberg? Good afternoon. Torque XE10. Welcome so much. Yeah, I hear you, Chaz. Jay is quite unfortunate. Um, I'm doing well, Liam, Cla Liam Claude, 98. Olaf, just here in the back of the Bissamoro facility, surrounded by magnificent vehicles. I have the Hot Wheels center seat here. I have the Bissamoto Veloster N 2020 there. I got the first Porsche ever built in my life <laughs> right there, the 850 iRock Porsche. Have a nice AMG convertible here as well, courtesy of our friends next door at Ruthless. So yeah, it's pretty good. Ah, he wants to get out 164 version of the, that Cayman. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it, you know? Oh, thank you, the W124 convertible. Yes, right there. I'm gonna try and shift it over here a little bit. Forgive me, I'm gonna get my equipment set up here nicely it's right there that thing is clean it's so nice so nice indeed okay um thank you so much liam i would love to have the company indeed and for those of you on youtube thank you for joining me here and allowing me to use youtube as an archiving opportunity so i appreciate all of you there um matt Tum wants to convert a 63 lincoln i assume you'll convert it to electric if that's the case i can help the team and i can definitely help you Blue one is a dream build. It's me. Thank you so much. And it's right there near the lift because I'm about to do some more magic to it. It's going to be pretty nice. One thing I always miss on that car is uh, converting to, to flex fuel because I have this weird thing with petrol, my petrol cars. I have this weird guilt with them. So what I try and do is convert it to a fuel, even though that's a pretty small vehicle in California, I desire to convert it to a fuel that is less polluting to the atmosphere. So instead of having gasoline, which has gasoline and water methanol, I'm going to convert it to an ethanol monster. So that being said, it doesn't put as many pollutants in the atmosphere. I don't have to worry about the oxides of sulfur and oxides of nitrogen, stuff like that, you know, that are harmful. Thank you so much, OG Dog. Good seeing you. David May Castellanos. Good afternoon. Wrong emojis. Yes, that's correct. There you go, Ricky Tiki. Thank you so much. The Porsche is a 75, 1975 Camera Steve LA. Hello, Sweezy. Thank you so much, Austin Dietech and TX Aprila. And so there's something I promised to talk to you guys about. And Miles, you came at a perfect time. You want to find out what was up. So this is what we'll do. See this? It's a piece of pipe. It's like a large pipe that we use for exhaust systems on some of the turbo applications. Also on some NAs that are pretty high strung. And can we just see as well, Nate shoots. This is a file. So a file, pipe. And I'm gonna make a very obnoxious noise. Hello, Purell USA, good seeing you. I love you guys, I'm rocking the Purell hat right here. Boom, boom, boom. Okay, so, pipe, file, obnoxious noise. It's annoying, right? Well, that's what happens in your engine when you knock. Thank you so much, Injectuni, for appreciating. I appreciate your candor there. Korean Danny, New Jersey, can't wait to see you as well. 
I like your name, 888, So that noise is equivalent to knock. Now what happens, what is actually happening because it's knocking, is like your piston knocking against the sleeve. And what causes this knock? Tooling a mixture a fuel that has reached its definite, you know, anti-knock properties, so it just cannot burn properly and you have this uncontrolled burn. And many times, for when I see with customers coming in here with other tunes, too much ignition timing. Yes, pre-detonation, and that's what our good friend JX Nathan just mentioned, is when your pressure that occurs inside the engine itself is high enough to whereby it can ignite the fuel mixture. Or, the fuel doesn't have the capability of having anti-knock, so it self-ignites. Or, you have something glowing, like a weird spark plug with the wrong heat range, or a piece of metal hanging in the middle of your combustion chamber, or something just very odd, very weird, it causes this pre-ignition detonation. Now, one thing that's pretty cool, and why am I talking about this to you guys, because I see so many of you out there with engine management solutions that are ideal. And why is that important? Um, thank you, JX Nathan. Good seeing that, you know. Um, yeah, Liam, I just mentioned that. When you reach the, the, um, the anti-knock properties of your fuel, when you don't have enough octane, that can happen too. But here's what's interesting. I see all these guys who try to skim on engine management solutions come to my facility, and my hands are tied. It's like me trying to do surgery as a physician with a butter knife. I can do it, but I can do a great job because I don't have this very important aspect available to me. And that is a knock sensor and being able to see knock in my ECU. So that being said, a knock sensor, as the name implies, is a sensor that determines knock. It's just a glorified microphone. And I, as a tuner, can look at this very nice chart that shows knock. So I can do sweeps where there's no knock and see where the noise level is for the engine naturally. And once I get to a threshold where knock starts to occur, it spikes and shows me that, and I can reduce timing and add fuel to that. But sometimes, these cost-effective engine management solutions don't let us look at that. And that's very, 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 very bad. So what is the solution for all of us? Get an engine management that is good. This one runs in Infinity. That runs in AM Series 2. Um, it allows us the capability for me to see knock per cylinder. And how does it do it? I don't need four microphones or four knock sensors to be able to look at every cylinder. Based upon the 720 degrees of rotation in an engine, I can determine based upon the ignition window which cylinder is knocking. And then, using the software, I have the ability, for example, the AM Infinity, to add fuel and remove timing based upon RPM load as well. And those are two very important aspects. Um, JXN just asked about Hondata. Well, let's say I have a vehicle right now on the dyno um, that is on Flash Pro. I can see knock per cylinder, very nice, right? But when I want to apply the necessary additions to remove knock, it's very challenging for me to do. What do I mean by that? That vehicle, there's an S2000 right now on the dyno, boosted on 91, made 470 horsepower, very nice, right? But something very interesting happens. The number three cylinder at 5,600 RPMs gets a little unhappy. Underneath that, it's happy. At 5,600, it has a little, a little just, just a little, um, just a little, okay? And I don't like that. So I want to move that. I want to take that away. It doesn't, it's not like this. It hasn't got there yet, but it's doing a little, okay? And see what I did? It's just, it already messed up. Look how you broke it. That's what happens to your piston, okay? So this is a perfect analogy. Anyway, so 
here's what I had to do. Because I was tuning on a Flash Pro, I only have a global ability to remove timing per cylinder. So to make the customer safe, I removed one degree of timing for the entire cylinder for every RPM, even at idle. Now, what does that do? It puts me in a position now where that car, even though it's safer in the higher RPMs, I add a little bit of fuel, I took away one degree of timing, it now hurt power in the other regions because I optimized ignition timing below 5600. So now my client has a little bit less power, which I don't like, for the sake of being able to control things up top and make it safe. Now, Golden Wolf 888 says, AM Infinity, standing on ECU, FTW, he's right. Because what I would do with Infinity, in the case like that, is I'll be able to determine, which I did, that at low RPMs, at low loads, there was no knock. So he'll have all the cruising power he wants at 5600. When he's on the track, he's tracking. Yeah, 5600, letting off throttle in the corners, he's fine. And then, when boost kicks in, and it doesn't knock at, at 5 PSI, it doesn't knock at 10 PSI, is when we got a little bit closer to 9, 10, it started knocking. Then I can add a reduction of timing and add a little fuel in that region. So now he has all the power he needs and all the safety he needs and is great. Thank you so much, Matt DeWillias. Since I'm at work, I want to know how important your engineering background is to your success in the automotive industry. Immensely. So, let's talk about a few contributions that I have had the honor of participating in. Hey, Shell, good seeing you. Um, long time no see. Let's talk about some of the contributions I've done to this, this, this scene, just based upon me being an engineering student and eventually an engineer and putting that knowledge to the car, car world. Adapter play kits. You know those people running HTDs and HTBs? Came from here. And it's once again me trying to find a solution to a problem. The problem was I want to run a bigger engine than my D-series, so the H22 or F22, and I wanted to keep my D-series gearbox, which I invested quite heavily. I bought a Mugen final drive, and I didn't want to cut up my chassis. So I didn't want to cut up my chassis, I want to keep my gearbox. So my engineering background allowed me to solve that problem by developing an adapter plate kit and a custom flywheel that can offset that. Then I got knocked off and one copy. Okay, header systems. I hated the fact that when I bought commercially available headers, when I drove around the streets, my header would hit a speed bump because my car slammed and I destroyed it. So I designed very, very efficient headers with multiple steps that allowed you to have a collector up front and just a single downpipe going underneath. So you don't have the capability of destroying your piping or your primary cylinders. Oh, I got knocked off there again. And of course, you know, I got out of the market. It was just crazy. People came knocking me off. But that's another contribution I had. Then, ITBs. No one wanted to make ITBs in the volume size that I wanted. TWM didn't want to, so I went to Jim Kinsler. Jim Kinsler became a mentor of mine, knocked it off. We had some good engineering discussions with him and his team, Scott, and came out with the Kinsler, first Kinsler manifold, which I should really, next take Tuesday, I'll grab it. It's upstairs in my mezzanine. I'll grab the very first Honda Kinsler ever made. And now, everyone benefits from it. There's so many people who are drivers in ITB. Some of them talk crap to me too, not knowing that that ITB existed only because of my interaction with that. So what does that mean? Being a problem solver, that's the key element in engineering, and that allowed me to be able to apply that knowledge to what I do. When it came to intake manifold designs, exhaust manifold designs, all of my studies in fluid dynamics helped me design something that the manufacturers in turn were able to create for me. Above and beyond that, when you take a look at being able to look at a problem, not as a challenge, but as an opportunity, allowed me to have those adapter play systems. And fast forward to today, we get to build cars like this, 2020 Veloster N, no tuning solution available for this. I didn't see any downpipes that were very designed well. 
worked with AEM induction to do a very, very custom intake which everyone can benefit from. So the answer is yes. Immensely, my engineering background allowed me, especially on the problem-solving side, to be able to become a better tuner and builder and designer in the automotive scene, you know? Golden Wolf says you made the path for better ITVs. Amen, absolutely, especially with stage injection because when, I remember having a discussion with Jim, and Jim Kins is in Troy, Michigan, and I said, hey, I, want to, I have this concept where I remember in lab, I almost got kicked out of school for this, having an injector and pulling it away from the manifold and noticed that the farther away my injector was, the better the spray pattern. So I understood that having better termization is dependent on the distance from the valve. So as long as I have control over my timing of the fuel, or let's say phasing, and I can pull it back, I'll make more power. And Jim said, absolutely not, BC. I will not make that manifold for you because you can create a fire situation. I mean, what do you mean? Well, during overlap with big cams, you have this opportunity where fire can come up the track and a car can burn down. I said, yes, Jim, I know that. But I have a solution. Why not injectors in the front so you can keep the flame in the engine bay far, far down the track as it's designed to keep it safe, and then in high RPMs, when you have no chance of reversion, introducing the secondary injection, I can do that with the AMEMS. He said, okay, if that's the case, no problem. So that being said, stage injection, which I gained, by the way, on my insight right there, 20 wheel in stage injection came from that. Once again, me understanding fuels, me understanding the engineering behind camshaft designs and overlap and reversion, all that fun stuff. I had a good question that I just missed here where someone asked about cylinders and which one is the most challenging. I'm trying to get the exact, here we go. JX Nathan, or J Nathan says, in a four cylinder, when tuning cylinder three, is the leanest or is it number two? Great question. Okay, let's talk about cylinders and which one is the most challenged. Well, most inline fours, a majority of them fire one, three, four, two, okay? Now think about that firing order. One, three, four, two. Number one fires, then number three. And while number three is firing, number one now has time to cool down, right? But when number three fires, the next one that fires is four, next to three. And then after that, what else fires? Number two. Number three doesn't get a break, does it, at all? One, three, three is hot, then four next to three fires, and two next to three fires, it never gets a chance to cool down. While the other cinders in that cycle do have a chance. Number one gets to chill a little bit, four gets to chill a little bit, two gets to chill a little bit, right? So guess what? That being said, you notice, especially in that car, I just mentioned number three, number three cylinder is always the hottest cylinder. So what I tend to do, off the bat when I tune, and this is a little tuning secret, right? Off the bat when I tune a car, and you see this also in your own car, AJ, I see you're here. I do tend to remove at least one degree of timing from number three cylinder and add a little bit of fuel just to keep it safe, just to keep it a little happier. Yes, Josh, rest in peace, number three. And the next one after that, of course, is number two because, you know, three fires next to it, then two follow suit. But definitely number three is, is the hottest one, you know? Oh, makes sense. Why my number three rod bearing on Mazda one? Yes, Liam, it ha number three is just a really hot cylinder. So if you're not careful, um, and you know, you see all these sidewinder exhaust systems that people have at an equal lens. If you're not individually monitoring knock, because a knock sensor and monitoring the knock window will tell you that. It will tell you that number three is, is a little noisy, right? Number three is a little noisy. And therefore, you can address, address and drive fuel. But here's a challenge. You're tuning with S300. You don't see knock. 
you, you tune, 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 put ignition timing, and you pull back when you, or some people keep going a degree more. It's, it's, it's blind. It's tuning blind. It's so, so hard. My pleasure, the passenger's opinion. I appreciate it indeed. Um, can you make a nitrogen-cooled engine? Um, you could, but that would be a bad idea. And why? Because of aluminum is what most of our internal combustion engines are made of, right? And aluminum has a very high coefficient of expansion. And you know what happens if you introduce nitrogen, which has a very low latent heat of vaporization, meaning it's very, very cool. If you introduce nitrogen, which is extremely cold, into a hot surface very easily, the expansion of the layers of aluminum in the hottest side may stay hot, and outside will expand even quicker, and it'll fracture. You know? In a sense, says, where do you get all your cool car clothes? This right here is, you can see the B there, BC Moto. It's um, on the BC Moto web store. So if you go on bcmoto.com, on the apparel, um, most of the clothes I wear are from that, indeed. So if you like it, go ahead, you know? SU30 mats, thank you for the kind words. I appreciate the kind words indeed. Thank you so much. Oh, I saw a question come in about where I went to school. I went to school at Cal State Long Beach. But before then, I kind of did a lot of funny things. Um, I'm from Nigeria, went to school um, back there, primary school, secondary school, and my parents are scientists, and I love technology. So because I love technology so much, I read and read and read and did fairly well in school, skipped a lot of grades, and I entered the university to study petrochemical engineering at the age of 15. So that being said, I did a lot of things young. I was very, very, very young as an engineering student, but I didn't learn anything because we didn't have technology back in Africa. So I came to the United States, like my parents did, to go to school. And they wouldn't accept my curriculum, so I, I pretty much had to start a fresh when I was 16. So I went to Swedish College, got my um, AA and AS in Pure and Applied Sciences, and then transferred to Cal State Long Beach. As a matter of fact, during a time, I was um, going to Long Beach and Cerritos at the same time, which is pretty cool. Thank you, Sal neighbor. Good seeing you. Jermaine, ah, brother, thank you so much, Olga. Appreciate that, you know. Um, 48 now. Thank you, Shannon, appreciate that. Um, thank you so much, <laughs> MJ, photograph neighbor. Um, Temio says, I'm from Nigeria as well. My dad is a biochemist, my mom is a school teacher. I'm going to Texas A&M for engineering. Smashing, we share something in common. In my case, my dad is a geologist and my mom was a biochemist. Brilliant, my mom. I see you guys are kind, MJ says I'm a genius. I am nothing compared to my mother. My mother is absolutely brilliant. And because of that, me having this brilliant mom, I am immensely attracted to women who are intelligent. <laughs> so bright women make users go crazy. And I'm sure it came from my mom admiring her so much because she is, she will run circles around my dad. My mom is freaking amazing. She's just brilliant, you know? Peter Pattis, cheers from Switzerland. Good seeing you as well. Appreciate that indeed, my friend. Thank you so much. Thoughts on parallel EC wiring. For those who know they need to send along but also need to pass emissions in streetcars. Also, what do you let both ECUs share and what do you divide between them? So Torque XE10, um, we're in California, so it's one of the reasons why you see me leaning more and more towards EVs. I'm either doing something crazy like this where it's a pre-smog vehicle or a track-only vehicle like the Hot Wheels car here. But um, when it comes to emissions, California doesn't play. So I tend to really shy away from those projects. Um, even the S2000 on the Dino right now is a full track car. I have another track Miata coming in later this afternoon. Um, when it comes to sharing ECUs, I only do that when it's important for CAN to talk to each other. So when I want to keep a dash function working, let's say, let's say I want to put Infinity on an AP2. Um, I want a dash function to work very properly and all that good stuff. Um, I've also done a few clever things, let's say Area Atoms as well, 
where I want to dash to work well, um, I tend to parallel them. And what I do is I give, um, I've done this, I did this with the Mustang, I believe, as well, we built for Ford. I, that's a perfect example. Standalone Infinity Mustang needs the factory ECU for the power distribution in the chassis. So silly things like the interior lights coming on, um, being able to start and stop the car, I keep with the factory ECU. Um, having it monitor um, boost and temperatures and also sharing things like the map sensor function or signal, um, RPM signal, all those things I allow and can, very important. I allow the factory ECU to still witness and then for drive by wire, the factory ECU controls the drive by wire. Then the signal from the throttle position and then the signal from the cam and crank which also shows the factory ECU for, for the uh, RPM, right? I share that with the standalone but I give standalone full control of the injectors and ignition timing, so injectors and coils. And in a car that allows me to do this, I also give the standalone control of cam advance. So if you have any kind of variable cam timing, I usually give the ECU the standalone control of that. If the factory ECU gets upset, I either give it a, a false reading through a resistor or a series of resistors, or I have the opportunity to maybe leave the control with the vehicle which is tough. But anyway, I know it's a pretty long question. I may have lost a few of you because it's not a very broad thing, you know. But, um, oh, JX, um, I got my degree at Cal State Long Beach. Thank you, Jermaine Cooper. Appreciate that. Um, I'm 15 and two-port of call like y'all. says, Amdali12353. 1253, I should say. Um, don't be. When I was 15, I was hard in the books. It took me years to get to where I am today. But one thing that I can tell you Amdali is to stay focused. If you want to build cars like this, don't think of yourself as a poor person. Think of yourself who's at the beginning of your journey. And really, I came to America with two suitcases and I got picked up by a family at the LA airport and I didn't have anything. And even though my parents helped me out a little bit, I actually called my father to his laughter and chagrin. Uh, and his laughter and my chagrin, I told him not to send me resources anymore. And I, to get for myself to fend for myself. And it was the worst and best thing for me to ever do. So I remember once I even bounced a check for $13 for my pager. I just couldn't, I didn't have $13 in my account to pay for a pager bill at the time. And that being said, it was really tough, but I stayed focused and persistent. I graduated um, finally with my own resources. I was able to get my first job and I kept racing, um, getting partners involved and, and designing components and really saving up to get the right parts, something I don't see nowadays, which is sad. I see so many people come here with cheap, rubbish parts when they could have saved up and then done it right the first time. Now, what happens with cheap, rubbish parts? The cheap, rubbish parts break, they have problems, they never come back to me again to dyno after I give them the insight on what to fix, and now, net, 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 they spent more money. But if you do it right the first time, you just have the patience, it's perfect, and you can enjoy your project. And that's what allows me to be very successful in every facet of my life. Patience and persistence, you know? Lucas Westlinberg says, where should I start as a beginner tuner? First, find a car that's very tuner friendly to use as your little platform. That's what I did. I started with a CRX. And secondly, you want to take classes. Read all you can from multiple sources, or better yet, I know with COVID now it's kind of strange, but look up EFI 101 or HP Academy. These are very reputable sites and outlets that can teach you the basics of tuning. And even if you're a seasoned tuner, like I was for many years, I still took those classes and I learned a lot more. And that allowed me the opportunity to understand very simple things like the auto cycle and what that means. What is fuel ratio? Well, how important is that? 
Why does every car have to be tuned differently? What's ideal fuel ratio for boost? Is there such a thing? Knock function and characteristics. Fiber cam timing. All these things, closed loop feedback for boost, closed loop feedback for O2 sensing, feedback for knock sensing. You can learn all that and it makes, it's a, it's a great thing. It's almost like tuning for me is not really a great business. It's tied to my time and resources, um, but it's something I do because I really enjoy it. I enjoy tuning. It's like you're constantly solving an equation in real time. You're constantly looking at things in real time, especially with Dino have and your problem solving. I, I love that. I love that a lot. AJ, you love tuning. You really would, you know? Engine tuning versus chassis, chassis dyno tuning, AJ says. Great, man, these are some great questions today. I'm so excited. Okay, so here's what I discovered years ago. I'll tell you a little story, and then that will lead to answering AJ's question. Years ago, I, um, we didn't have access to ITBs, right? And I'm talking about this like in the mid-90s, mid to late 90s, and I had to tune my cars and make a lot of power. And I learned from JC, uh, the founder of AEM, that Dual carbs allowed me the opportunity on my inline four to make good power and get a lot of flow. So, I take a dual carb engine, I tune it on the engine dyno. It's perfect, right? Because you can change things very easily on the engine dyno. It's very conducive to change exhaust header lengths. Um, it's very easy to change trumpets. Um, you can be in a, in, a, in a safe environment outside the engine room. You don't have to smell fumes. It's really cool. And it just looks really, really bitching, right? So, I had the opportunity to tune it. Tune it perfectly. Let's say I make 200 horsepower. Perfect, right? 200 horsepower to crank. Awesome. So if I put it in my car with about a 17% drivetrain loss, I should make about 170, right? No problem. 170 wheel, great. I put it in the car, start it. The car runs like crap. What happened? Not only am I not making the power, it is running like rubbish. How is this possible? Then it hit me. Engine bay dynamics. Inside the engine dyno, it's an open room, some pretty much almost as large as this location, this area right here, in a very controlled environment with nice air coming into it, and then the trumpet length that you're experiencing, the, the, the wave harmonic that you're capturing with the traveling of the pulse wave down the track of the throttle body goes down to the end of it and reflects. So you're tuning with a perfect length. You put it in the engine bay of your Civic, your CRX, your Nissan, your Toyota, you now have a firewall. The firewall now reflects those waves differently. So your tune is out the window. So, what is my experience when it comes to engine dynos versus chassis dynos? Engine dynos are a great environment to be able to develop products. It's very easy, you can pull exhaust manifolds off pull intake manifolds off, do clever things with camshafts. It's very conducive to do testing in a controlled environment, which is great. Um, many advanced ones have the ability to control the temperature in the room, which is great, and have a very good exhaust system so you don't have any kind of rubbish or you're not ingesting any contaminants or combustive elements. The natural bay of the engine is the natural habitat for the engine. So if you're going to do something, even with race teams, it's good to be able to test it in a chassis, especially if you have challenges with ITBs, hit a firewall, or you have to change piping around due to your turbo system, or better yet, you can diagnose things like your axles misbehaving, or gearboxes, and so, so forth. You can really do a lot of diagnosis on the dyno. It's one of the reasons why I invested heavily in a Dynapack, even though it's extremely expensive. The Dynapack is the closest thing to an engine dyno, AJ, from Relentless Racing, um, with the engine existing in its natural habitat. 
So why is it very similar? I don't have an entire interface that can skew results. Most customers come here with their race cars not even aligned, so it won't mess those things up. I don't have to worry about strapping. I don't have to worry about weird results because of what gear I'm in, because on a Dynapack, no matter what gear I'm in, because of the torque multiplication that you put in there, it gives me the same number. While with a Dynajet, when you use gears that have more mechanical leverage, it gives you more power output. Because guess what? How does it calculate the power? By how easy it is for you to overcome the resistance of that large flywheel on the ground being that big roller. So if you can overcome that easier, you make more power, right? Well, you can do that with gearing. And plus, it's very quiet. So I can even hear things. And I can look real time as I'm doing dyno tuning. Um, I can look real time at keeping a, a fixed RPM and varying my throttle. And I can see each axle output. If one is putting out more than the other, I can some things up one of my axles. I can tell. It's really good. It's really good, you know? Can you balance the heat and nitrogen cooled engine? The heat and nitrogen, yes you can. So you could mix two things to be able to cool it, but it's, one thing is, as an engineer, and, and AJ, I know you can back me up on this one. Um, I'm big on engineering economics. So what does that mean? Because you can do something, doesn't mean it should be done, because it could be ridiculously expensive. Now, I'll give you an analogy, just to go along the lines of what your heat and nitrogen cooled engine is, right? Let's say I want to travel to AJ's house. I have two options. AJ lives in Long Beach area. Hope you're safe over there in Long Beach, by the way, AJ. I can drive my electric car to AJ's place and see him and drive back. Or I can build an airport here, pay AJ to build me an airport there, buy a plane, and fly to see AJ. Which is more expensive and which is more cumbersome? Of course, the latter. So, with what we have today, with water being a very efficient cooling mechanism, and water pumps and the veins that we have now being mechanically driven by the motor itself is a very efficient way of doing it and very cost effective, it is a very good solution to use that, and even to some extent, air cooling, to be able to cool an engine, then try and mix heat from an engine or source and nitrogen from a source that needs to be replenished to be able to perform the same function. So I hope that makes sense, you know? What do you need to study to work on EVs? I would say a very good understanding of electrical engineering. Um, or they're actually, if you want to be able to get on the service side of it instead of design, um, you could go to local colleges. They have courses in renewable energy. I know that uh, near me, there's Rio Hondo College and they have that. They literally have a course dedicated to this and companies like Tesla and BMW are picking those people up like crazy when they graduate. And there are small classes of like 30 to 40, which is very nice, so you can do that. It depends on what, fa what facet of the EV world you want to focus on, you know? Hello, Josh Trish, good seeing you. Oh my goodness. I have an FK Type R, would you replace it with an R35 or a Porsche C2S? C2s, ooh. Those are two different cars. If you want something that's super modifiable, the R35. Just like if you had FK8, you probably did modify because those cars take what modification. If you want a nice cruiser and a very luxury car that has a nice status symbol, the C2S is, is a pretty good car. And I, whether you're looking at the C2S from the 96 through 997 through 991, they're amazing. They really are.
<laughs> Thank you so much, Liam Cleo 98 Just look at some of the great questions we have here that are coming. I think I missed so many of them. Um, have you ever done a fine tuning as a passenger on the move, meaning while driving in real conditions, says Peter Pattis? No, I don't do that for two reasons. One, it is dangerous. Street tuning is very dangerous. Um, even if you're trying to move, you're trying to play with keys. It's, it's just so dangerous. Um, I have, I will confess that I have had the opportunity to do two situations where I had to either sit with someone or log something and make some changes. And that was very brief periods of time. I say extremely brief. One is this, Supra. Toyota Supras make great power, fourth gen, um, the Mark IV. Great cars, you can tune them, make tons of power with a factory engine, you build them, you put camshafts, you're a superhero, it's great. And my dyno does a great job in being able to keep things at steady state. So I can lock the Supra at 1500 RPMs, vary my throttle and tune and impeccably tune to partial throttle. That's why I don't have to drive with anyone because I can impeccably tune partial throttle. I can do it throughout the entire RPM range. I can go up to 6,000 RPMs, lock the car at 6,000 RPMs, vary throttle to 100% and tune each cell if I wanted to. So it's great. And that's what some tuners try to achieve. Either they're being cheap and going with a street tune, which is horrible by the way, because you cannot optimize anything. You can't. You cannot optimize ignition timing or cam timing on a road driving around. You just don't know if you're going the right direction. You don't know. Or someone has a dyno jet or inertia-based dyno where you cannot limit RPM and tune a particular RPM range to make it perfect like the OEMs do. When Hyundai builds this car and they do mapping with the Bosch ECU, they use a dyno pack to do it. Same with Toyota, same with Porsche, same with Honda. Toyota even uses ours sometimes, TRD here in the South Bay, when they're booked, they come here and use ours. So that being said, that's what they use, so I don't have to do that. So with the Supra, the only time I had to is moving from a stop. So the vehicle is perfect AFR at idle, perfect AFR at let's say 1500 RPM, but when you're moving from zero to 1500 and the Supra being very heavy, it may dip into regions that I couldn't see on the dyno. So in that being said, I simply could sit with a client and have them just take off and stop. Literally one to two miles an hour, one to two and stop. And I log in, oh, okay, I see, too much fuel. Take away, do it again, oh, okay. The tipping fuel is a little bit too much. Okay, I take that one, and that's it. Second situation is, customer comes here, Eric Adam, lightweight car, little over 1,000 pounds, makes 400 horsepower. When the gentleman drives away, car lunges. Why? As he's doing and he's lunging, his foot is <laughs> making it lunge worse. What was happening is the car is so light and the car makes so much power that when you tip into 5% throttle and the throttle body opens 5%, it wants the car to just launch. So with drive-by-wire, another great advantage of drive-by-wire, I had to, based upon the log and seeing what was going on, limit the amount of throttle plate opening versus pedal on the foot. So at 5% throttle, the throttle opened 2%. At 10% throttle, the plate opened, or the pedal, the plate opened 5%. At 20% pedal, the throttle body barely opened a little bit over 11%. And now, the customer was able to drive, oh, I'm ready for the track now, he said. So that is the advantage. And that's the only other time that I would not even sit with a customer, but put my laptop on, have them drive it and log it. I never, ever, ever sit with someone. It is dangerous. Absolutely. I do need to see you, AJ. Oh, so many great questions. I could do Tech Tuesday for like hours and hours and hours, you know? Thank you so much, Instaive. Um, thank you very much, PDX. Appreciate that. 
I really wish you used to tune VWs. Um, I do. I have VW guys who come here with Motec and, and um, AEM and all kind of cool stuff. Haltex, yeah, that's not a challenge. I love tuning all kind of cars. Hello, Anthony from Belgium, my good old friend. Good seeing you. Have you tuned a 2JZ before, says the passenger's opinion? My fault, my fault, passenger's opinion. Because I've tuned, I'm not, I started off when I opened to the public in 2006. The first cars that drove motion would be me were all Supras. My first dyno I bought was a 400 horsepower dyno, and I had to upgrade to this 1,000 horsepower one because the Super guys kept maxing out my dyno. So I started my tuning services to the public to nothing but two JZs and one Js and seven MGTEs, and dare I say, a combination of one, one J, one two Js, one J head and two J bottom end. I think even reverse. And by the way, when it comes to two Js and all those Toyotas, I'm a huge advocate of VVT. If you go on the Hoonigan channel, Vin brought a, I think it was a 1JZ powered Nissan 240. And you'll see the kind of power I gained by tuning the VVT. It was amazing. We picked up like hundreds of horsepower in the mid-range. I love VVT. Why most tuners tend to turn it off because maybe they're scared. Or I don't know what the deal is. I love it. I tune them with vigor and I love it. I do all kind of cool things, you know? Do you point at anyone to build the EV Porsche? Of course. The thing is, has tons of stickers on it. <laughs> yes, Alexis, I did partner with a few people. At this time last year, we're in June, right? I didn't know anything about electric vehicles. So who are some of the, I would say, aesthetic partners I had in terms of aesthetics? Uh, DreamWorks, Andy Blackmore, uh, Rod Chung from RS, um, the guys from Glissorit, now, on a technical side, who do I partner with? Um, Michael and his team from EV West, um, the guys from uh, Rassant, even Rywire came by here to help me with a few things as well. AEM, the entire team at AEM, they're probably tired of hearing from me. Um, Jason Hughes was another good guy who helped me with some coding stuff. And um, it's just, I had a ton of partners. There's not one project here, not one, that I built by myself. It's just impossible. I'm no man is an island. Um, I may have great visions, I may have the capability of doing a lot of programming and design, but I can't build everything myself. I can't even weld. I can't weld at all. I can't even lay a bead down. I can tune, I, can, I learn how to wire, so I can do that. Um, I can design my butt off, I can drive, I can bring concepts to life. Um, I don't, even when it comes to like bleeding my brakes, I just learned how to do that recently. Duran did all my brake bleeding. It's weird, you know? So that being said, um, yeah, I, the van, wow, seven weeks, I couldn't build this car in seven weeks by myself, it's impossible. So that being said, yeah, I do partner with other people, I have great partners, and most of partners, you see them all on the call. Because I'm very proud and I'm, I'm very appreciative of the partners I have, which is great, you know? Thanks for the live, says Lucas Weinsberg, great way to wake up and stay safe today. Stay safe as well, brother. LA's been kind of crazy with all the madness going on with the looting and protesting and whatnot, so we do have to stay safe. We absolutely do have to, you know? Um, can you turbo an original 280ZX79 engine, like the L-Series? Yeah, absolutely, you know? Um, it's not good with the building of engines or anything, but I can drive. Oh, you're not good with the building of engines or anything, but driving is good. And me? No. Oh, Kevin's here. Hello, Kevin. Kevin, come do a boost test on this silly S2K. Kevin's been helping me quite a bit. See, another person who helped me. Without Kevin, 
I may have heard some stuff on my wagon. See the wagon that we built a couple years ago? Kevin came by with this instrument that allows me to see any leaks in the system. And I found, totally our fault, a leak from the fitting on the, on the blow-off, a leak from the fitting on the wastegate. Um, a T-fitting was a leak there as well. It's crazy. It's like just little things that, and you know what happens if I didn't fix those leaks, I didn't find those boost leaks? My turbo was overspinning itself, trying to maintain the 33 PSI of boost I was shooting for. And then it will just evacuate and it will keep spinning. To, it will make the boost, but at an RPM that will be bad for the turbo. And what will end up happening is I'll just kill the cartridge. I'll overspin. I'll pretty much have a spun bearing in my turbo by that. So that's very sad, you know? TWK Junk. Hello, Tim, sir. Good seeing you. By the way, guys, if you're in a 951 or 909 and you see a silver Porsche that has a martini livery on it and looks fairly stock but very clean, Leave the car alone, because he will spank you. Tim will just, that thing makes as much horsepower as torque, and it's boosted, and it's scary. It's amazing. So Tim, you have a beautiful car, you know? CW said, hi, Beast, I feel special. You tuned my kit to GT40 on the street, and it was an excuse to get in the car. Yes, so what happened, T, ah, TW, that's another one who I sat in. You know what, he had a torquey, V8 engine in his car, and it was we were trying to tune tip in, so just like the super tip in, right? So now, okay, go ahead, Tim, tip it in, tip it, and he's tipping it. Man, I got sick, I almost vomited in his car. Thank god I didn't vomit in your car, which is pretty crazy. But please, um, Tim no longer has a GT40, but he now has a beautiful silver Porsche. Which, by the way, Tim, come visit me. I want to get your input on this EV car. Come visit me when you can soon. We're here, I'm here every day, every day. I want you to give me some pointers because you're a very good driver. You have a lot of cool cars and you know what makes a good driver car. So visit me. I want your input, please. Anyway, thank you so much, PDX Fit AT40. Hello, who's Mario? Good afternoon. Well, we're having a great show today and time is almost up. Oh my God, I just love seeing you guys in the family. Keep up, keep mobbing, BC, says PDX. We love you, love you as well, sir. Thank you so much. I was just looking at a 2008 911 Turbo, says Cruz A&B, with a Martin livery. Yeah, those are pretty nice. Um, thoughts on the 2 GRFE? I haven't had much experience with that power plant, NJ, so you must forgive me. I don't have many pointers in that direction. If I had a relationship with Toyota, I probably would, but I don't have a strong relationship with them. On the TRD side, yes, we have a slight relationship. We've done some cool things, even autonomous vehicles with the TRD division, um, but nothing with Toyota directly, so please forgive me, you know? Black Diamond, GSS, any Ecotech experience? Yes, I've had GM engineers work with us here at Bismoto. Um, we've had quite a bit of experience with that. Um, I'm not a big fan of the MEFI setup, but we've had Ecotech engines come here on an AEM, and we've tuned them with much vigor and success, absolutely. Your enthusiasm and energy is amazing. I love your project. Thank you, QIS, or Key Spirit. Pretty cool name, thank you indeed. Single versus twin turbo, says SU30 Max. Good question, we had that a couple of Tech Tuesdays ago. So, not too long ago, it was way more efficient to use a twin turbo setup because you just got a better air under the curve in terms of power delivery and airflow, right? Has power delivery because of the airflow. But nowadays, with the advances in aerodynamics in the, com in the compressor wheels and exhaust wheels, it's no longer the case. You can make as much efficient power with a single turbo than you did not too long ago with a twin turbo just because of how efficient these designs are nowadays. So that being said, um, the only thing that you do twin turbos with is if you want this nice aesthetic, 
or if your car came with it, or you just want to be different. Um, the Twin Turbo does add some complexity. So that being said, you can do a single whenever you can. But uh, yeah, it's no longer the case. You can do some pretty good damage with a single turbo nowadays with the right um, compressor designs, you know? Um, oh, I see uh, some really good questions here. Um, do you find a large portion of your success is due to networking and partnerships? What was it like starting out without the network? Um, I would say the success that I had initially was really singular because I didn't have any support. So remember, I talked about this in my last Tech Tuesday, and if you haven't seen it, it's archived on my YouTube page. Um, when I first started, I didn't get any help. And as a matter of fact, Tim, TW, who's here, his best friend, John Consiaudis, who took me under his wing and showed me the ropes, but at first, no one wanted to help me at all. So it was very, very difficult for me to get anything done. And even though I wanted sponsors and I begged for partners to sponsor me, companies to sponsor me, and there are two companies that were adamant in rejecting me and said really bad things to me that still holds a little bit of grudge to today with the team, um, I just couldn't get any help. So I had to go fast by myself. I had to buy components, experiment myself, because once again, I came from an era where you couldn't buy parts, right? You couldn't go to Amazon or BC Moto and just buy parts and put in your car. You had to kind of create your own thing. And my success came from me experiencing a lot of failure, blowing a lot of things up, learning from that, not giving up and keep pushing on. I see customers or people on this, at the track where they hurt something, like, oh, I'm done, I'm selling everything. I never give up. I blow things up and I start laughing. You guys saw the stubs I posted, the 935 stubs I posted a couple weeks ago? I had a guy from media in the car and he was shocked that I wasn't pissed. I was like, excited. He's like, why are you excited? You're weird. And I told him I'm going to learn something from this. So that was my success earlier on was me being persistent and experimenting and trying things out. Fast forward to today, the reason why I can build great cars like this 2020 Veloster N here next to me is because of my networking with partners like the higher-ups and property, I would say, that part planning at Hyundai. Um, when it comes to the EV world, I saw a little bit of a mixture of things. I saw some people who were willing to assist and some people who were like very standoffish or people who embraced and when they saw us, they are like, oh, no. Same thing there. I mean, being able to network and, and talk to people and interact is helping me along. But my initial success um, came from just hustling, really just <laughs> working hard and making things happen, you know? Um, Brazil, Rodrigo in the house, thank you so much. Appreciate that indeed. Um, my biggest struggle is how exclusive I noticed the industry. I don't know what that means. That's great, they must feel ashamed, serves them right. Yeah, it's kind of weird. One was a clutch company. So what was, what was funny was that um, at that time, I remember racing in Sacramento at a drag race, and I really needed a clutch. Because um, my clutch, you know, I just wanted a good clutch set up, people going twin discs, I want to try that out. So I approached this company, a very popular one, because uh, the owner was there, and he said, um, I told him, hey, could you help me out with a clutch? I'm even willing to pay a little bit. I just love to represent your brand and help push it forward. And he's like, well, you're a single cam, so I don't see what the benefit is for me supporting you. I said, okay. Then he, in turn, supported my teammate, who had a B-series, gave him a full twin disc setup with a car that was slower than mine and never raced. So what ended up happening is that guy ended up not racing after a few months, stopped, parted out his car, nothing came from it, and I kept moving on till today. Well, let's fast forward to SEMA 2012. The same person approached me and said, hey, BC, oh my God, you're into Porsche, doing can we work with you? And I said, no. Do you remember the time years ago when I was pretty much begging to work with you because I really wanted to? You said no to me. So at this point, 
I'm with Action Clutch. I love those guys. They're very good to me, and I'm very happy and loyal to them. And he was very sad. Um, there's another story that I can tell, but I'm good terms with them now, so I won't tell that story. There's another one. But there's a company that I would say does a lot of turbo stuff, and I went to them, and they said, no, we're not going to support you because you're an all-motor guy. What do you know about turbocharging? Look now. <laughs> right? That company, I'm now, you know, I'm cool with them now, but um, they were taking it. And for many years, we wouldn't even talk to them, you know, because of that. Because it was just, you never know. You never know, you know. Jay Ken, how's my day going? My day is going extremely well. Thank you so much. And Jay Obiala asked me a good question. What car did you learn to drive in and what you learned stick in a different car? What was it? Great question. I'll answer both at the same time, and I may have to fly. The first car that I learned how to drive in, and it happened to be a manual, was a Peugeot 504. Now, back home where I'm from, I never had the opportunity to drive a car because uh, my family had drivers. So you, if you want to go somewhere, you tell the driver, they take you there. But as a curious engineer to be in my pre-teens, um, I always watched what my driver was doing. So I watched how he would put it in gear and then take his foot off the clutch and at the same time initiate the petrol level, right? The gas pedal, and then ease his way up. Well, when my parents would be at work and they left one of our cars at home, the Peugeot, I would start it up and practice in our compound. We had a pretty large compound, so I would drive around the compound and then practice right driving the car. And I kept driving it. And then one day when I was bold, my parents were gone, I went out the main road. I opened the gate and went out the main road and came back in. And by the way, I was 12 when I was doing this, right? And I remember my father caught me once and I said, Dad, I'm so sorry. I would get a license, but you couldn't get a license until you were 16. So I went to the local DMV, um, bribed them, and got my license at 13. And what I'll do, I remember this, I still have my license. My next Tech Tuesday, or maybe I'll do it on a story, I'll put my next Tech Tuesday, I'll bring my original license when I was 13 here, and you guys will see my driver's license. It looks like a passport, but I was 13 years old with my driver's license that I bribed an official back home to get. Crazy, right? <laughs> My pleasure indeed, NJ. Good seeing you. Thoughts about 70s and 80 Corollas? I know. Those are pretty cool. You're having a good comeback. Everything old is cool now. You see these bends here? You guys can see that on YouTube, but right there? That's us total 80s, 90s cars. That stuff is becoming really, really hot nowadays, which is great, you know? Oh, my goodness. Good to see you as well, Avery DN. And you have got me to the point where I do have to depart. So, guys, thank you so much for participating in this great Tech Tuesday. I had a blast interacting with all of you, my family. Um... I look forward to really interacting more. I'll have this up here on Instagram in my permanent archive. Let's say I'll put it up as an IGTV. And then I'm gonna upload it to you guys on YouTube. And also right now, as you can see, I'm recording with this phone um, a podcast. So if you'd like to listen to this on your favorite podcast networks, you can do that on Anchor or Spotify or Radio Public or Podbean or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, wherever your favorite one is, okay? So thank you so much, guys. Have a great afternoon. Stay safe. Stay woke. I <laughs> see all this great stuff here. And I will talk to you guys soon. Cheers. Bye-bye.